Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from... William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... No, no, that's actually funny. That's funny. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. I'll tell you why. Look, when you're on death row, Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I am William Nagara. Bill, how are you feeling today? Uh, it's good. It's you know, it's uh it's a happy day. It's 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 sunny here in Corcoran, California. And uh, look man, it's Sunday. It's what can I say? It's a great day. Yeah, and it's not football season, so there aren't a bunch of guys screaming at the top of their lungs right now. Oh, well, all contraire, mon frere, these guys don't need something exciting to scream about. They would scream about anything that is actually, um, in any way, shape, or form, mildly entertaining, including um, basketball, because it's the NBA season, and right now, um, hey, believe me, they're finding plenty to scream about. I might scream about basketball occasionally, but... They're always screaming, but are they in a common area? Like, are they screaming across the room? Are they standing in front of each other screaming? I just, it's a bizarre way of communicating. Well, that's, you know, Marcelli and I always talk about that because there's a common area called the day room and there's a huge flat screen TV there and the guys sit there and instead of, you know, they can, I, I don't mind guys yelling about the game and say, hey, you know, God, the great, you know, LeBron James or whatever the guy is that you're watching is a great player. But these guys talk to each other always the same way. They can be one foot apart and they're actually yelling. And I don't understand. I've never understood that because I think they believe that that makes them feel a bit tougher. And as I said, this place is freaking Disneyland compared to the death row where I was at. And these guys have to you know, kind of pretend that they're tough guys. So that's how they communicate. Hence the reason I just 
exit stage left. I don't pay no attention to these clowns, and I keep rolling. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way. Almost like a drill sergeant kind of mentality. Or, but I don't picture a tough guy just screaming in in someone's face. It just seems very buffoonish to me. But I think we're on the same page. It is. There. Most guys. Yeah, you're right. Most guys who are convicts don't do much yelling at all. They're the most quietest, most respectful people I've ever met in my life because to them, respect is everything. But because they give it, they expect it back. And if you just step on someone's toes, what that means is you disrespect them in any way, shape, or form. The penalty usually is death. So the guys I've met, the, the deadliest guys, don't look in any way, shape, or form like they'd kill you. But they will. Yeah. So speaking of that, this we're going to cover a guy that you served time with on death row named Dean Carter. And, uh, and you knew this guy personally. And it's a really interesting case. He's not that interesting. He's pretty much just a dumb criminal, but it, it is interesting. And, and we'll get into the reasons why. I just want to first remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and check out our Patreon page. That is patreon.com slash Death Row Diaries, where you will get bonus episodes that aren't otherwise available. Okay. So Dean Carter, this guy was a, he was a criminal from a young age. He was in the foster care system. That's his background. Um, anything interesting there? Just the usual stuff. He starts breaking into houses and things like that. Well, yeah, but, um, well, so first of all, of course, Dean Carter is a person that I serve with, but also one of our Patreon subscribers requested this case. And you've probably heard us over the last couple of weeks talking about the Patreon subscribers. And we kind of said, look, if you subscribe to us, we will definitely look at some of the cases that you've asked for. And we're going to keep doing that. We'd like to keep our word here on the show. And this guy is a, a request. Um, his nickname is Alaska. That's what they used to call him on death row. And well, when I met him, that's what he referred to himself as was Alaska. And Matt did mention that, you know, as a kid, he, he was breaking into houses. Um, and, and that is true. Uh, but there's a little bit more to it. This guy, you know, it's, it's interesting because there's so much about this guy. There's different dimensions to him. And he's really not that interesting, but in a way he, he actually is. So at, at, so he was actually, he had a stepfather. His mother was uh, an Alaskan Eskimo. And so he's half Eskimo. His father, um, well, was not really in his life. He didn't know his birth father. And this guy was a big guy. He's six foot four, large man about 235, 240 pounds. Um, the guy who actually brought him up was his stepfather, was the, the chief of police, if you can imagine that. And 
this guy was just a bad seed from the very beginning. At age 12, he's declared a delinquent child and he's sent to youth camp uh, where he attempted at least three escapes. Um, he is then declared and thrown into uh, foster care homes. And as an adult, he spent time in Oregon prisons for grand theft auto, possession of cocaine, and burglary. So from that picture right there, you never see him as a guy who turns into a serial killer. And so let me remind the audience that we've talked about this before. And, you know, I, I, I continue to go over this because I want the audience to really take a look at some of these signs and take a look at some of the same road that these guys travel when they go from what you would think is a regular criminal, burglar, cocaine possession type of guy, drug addict, whatever, and then they go to prison. It's in prison or in the or in the case of truck drivers, is where these guys begin the fantasy. And it's not a regular fantasy like you and I, Matt, that would talk about or, wow, that's a beautiful girl. I'd like to ask her out. You see yourself dating that girl. Their, tw- their, their thoughts are much more twisted than that. And it's when they have time alone to self-reflect, which most people do when they're trying to better themselves or whatever, these guys actually is exactly what they're doing. They're bettering themselves to be more efficient at what they want to do which is ultimately to kill. We've seen it in the case of Lawrence Bittaker, a number of truck drivers, and now this guy as well. We saw it with the guy, the Matt Chopper, too. It's uh, it's the time they spend alone where they're able to discover exactly who and what they are, and then they act on it. Right, so it escalates, and this guy... This guy's considered a spree killer because he commits several murders in a short period of time. Um, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that or just go into what he did. Well, yeah, I'd like to address that. And although every spree killer is not a serial killer, some serial killers are spree killers, if that makes any sense. So the reason they consider him a spree killer is because, as you mentioned, he killed, in a, in a very short period of time, 18 days, he kills five women that they know of. Okay, so just to make myself clear on this, these were not his first murders. Dean Carter is a serial killer. That he killed in such a short span is a bit of a spree but we've seen this in several serial killers that have never been called spree killers richard ramirez if you know him he killed twice in one night and he killed in succession many women and men jack the ripper the most famous serial killer of all time attacked one woman was disturbed and then immediately because he didn't reach that rush level that level that i talk about constantly that serial killers are chasing that rush he kills again the same night so please don't be misled by 
what you hear these <laughs> so-called experts talk about spree killer, serial killer. Dean Carter is a serial killer, not a spree killer. Did he call, kill in a very short period of spree? Sure, sure he did. But that doesn't make him just a spree killer. So that's the, the skinny on Dean Carter. Now in terms of his cases are concerned, before he arrived in California, he killed prior to that. He was never charged with that. He was actually the suspect, the main suspect, in more than 25 other murders. But what law enforcement do a lot of the times, and of course, it's the smart thing to do, it's the fiscally responsible thing to do, is if you already got a guy for five murders and you know his DNA, they have him dead bang, and he's on death row already, why try him for a bunch of other murders when they, it makes no difference. He's already in prison. He's not ever going to get out of prison. And of course, murder doesn't have a statute of limitation. So if he's about to get out because the other four or five murders fell through or some technicality, they can always charge him later. Let me call you back, Matt. Yeah, so he's listed, uh, referred to as a spree killer pretty much everywhere. And that, it's confusing to me because... When we get into his killing spree, it's like he's barely, he's really bad at concealing what he's doing. He's, he's not good at it. So I, I'm failing to see how he could have got away with so many murders before. Well, he, he wasn't interested in covering it up. Okay. He, he was not. And if, if you recall, um, he, even when he's on death row, he begins this narrative that he's inventing as he goes along. This guy, of course, he's not the smartest guy in the book, but as I've mentioned many times, serial killers or killers of this sort are not interested in really covering their tracks. They're very impulsive. Once it gets a hold of them, they have to chase the rush. This guy's chasing a rush at the ultimate level. Um, now, one of his victims, which is in California, was his first victim. Uh, he basically, he raped a woman. He first snuck into her room, okay? So he meets this woman, and her name is Rose Stewart. And two weeks prior to that, and she, he really begins to try and talk her up. Doesn't work. You know, she says he's a tall guy, he's not bad looking, but there's something about him that really creeps her up. Um, she basically ignored him. And two weeks later, she suddenly wakes up from what she believes is a dream. And she immediately knows somebody is in her room. She doesn't know who it is yet, but she knows there's someone. The light from outside her home is shining into her room. And she sees and notices a man standing in a doorway. He has a large butcher knife. He has a red bandana covering his face. But she knows exactly who it is because of his demeanor, his size, 
And she knows it's Dean Carter, the guy she met two weeks ago. He basically just grabs her and immediately sexually assaults her. Twice he chokes her to unconsciousness because she tried to escape and she because she tried to scream. She was certain this guy was going to kill her. And what happens is that she is beginning to, she begins to talk to him. She's a very intelligent young woman. And, and, and I can only say that in this circumstance, I don't know anybody could have, what could, could have done what she did at that moment. She thought on her feet. She understood she's in the room with a predator who's sexually assaulting her. And during her testimony of this exact act, she talks about that she realized that he was going to kill her. So she took hold of his face and began to talk to him. She started telling him that he was beautiful and that she wanted to have him as a boyfriend, that no one had ever been as tender and loving and great in bed as he has been. I mean, imagine that, Matt. This girl has been, this woman, this young woman has been raped, sexually assaulted by a freaking monster with a knife in his hand. And she believes she's gonna die and she's able to pull this off, to be almost tender with this guy, to get him to somehow believe that there's something more going on here. Because remember, she tried talking her up before this. Yeah, so she's playing into his ego, which I'm assuming is pretty big, um, based on some of his other behavior. You know, he fancies himself a ladies' man, and I think he does get some ladies occasionally. Like you said, he's not bad looking, but I mean, was he kind of an egotistical guy? All guys that are rapists, serial killers, believe that they believe that they're ladies' men. They, they believe that every woman that sees them walk into a room, their eyes are on him. It, it never ceases to amaze me the ego of these guys about their victims. I've talked to many of them. They've told me, oh, my gosh, she loved it. It was never like, she, like they said. She testified that way because her her, her husband found out about us. They're always covering it up with, it wasn't rape. She wanted me. This is why I was there. She wanted this like this. Well, in this case, Dean Carter is convinced by this young woman, as I mentioned, her name is Rose Stewart, that he was actually gonna be in a relationship with her. She told him when she picked up the keys to leave, don't you dare leave me. You better come back. I need you. I want you. I mean, this guy, I mean, he must be flying on cloud nine. Of course, when he finally leaves, she calls law enforcement and he disappears. The terrible part about this, Matt, is that this young woman, shortly after, on April 10, when he begins this, 
serial predators, you know, move toward becoming a serial killer or whatever you want to call it, she actually blames herself. She believes, at least at some point, that maybe because she fooled him, maybe because she was able to convince him to leave her alive and that a possible relationship was going to happen, that he got so infuriated by that that he was fooled actually by her, that that's the reason he started the spree at killing these women and he killed them in succession. Within 18 days, he killed five women. And this really haunted her for many years. Well, I don't know if if Miss Stewart is listening to this or will ever listen to this, but I can tell her with a medical certainty that she did did absolutely nothing wrong. She saved her own life is what she did. And that he killed people after that had nothing to do with her. Dean Carter is a serial killer. He rapes, he kills because it gets... She curbed his appetite by feeding his ego is what she did. And it only changed one thing, that he didn't kill her. Otherwise, his appetite, his impulse would have dictated that he kill her as well. So she shouldn't feel that way about guilty or anything else. As I mentioned, on April 10th, he begins a very quick ascension into serial killer roar. Uh, He goes into the apartments of two young ladies named Juliet Mills and Susan Knoll, and he killed and raped both of them, strangled them, and then he stuffed their bodies into the closet stacked on top of each other. And he thought that was kind of cute too because when I interviewed him about this, and of course he did not know I was interviewing him, according to him, he just thought I was another killer. He told me he thought it was kind of funny. He didn't even intend to do that until he did it, and then he thought, huh, that's funny. So he stacked the bodies. The next day, again, he strikes again. He strangles 24-year-old Bonnie Guthrie, Guther, and she's a friend of Noel's, the woman he killed the day before. Same thing. He rapes and kills her. But then he kills another woman two days later. And I'm going to mess up this name, but her name is Tok Chum Kim. I apologize if I mispronounced that. And she's in Oakland at her apartment. And he also murders her. The next day travels back down to San Diego where he strangles, rapes, and kills Jeanette Collins in her home. This guy is an animal. He is a serial killer. And he enjoyed every bit of it. Nothing had changed. He lived his life the way he wanted to live it. There is nothing that Ms. Stewart did 
to offend him, to upset him, because prior to this, Matt, prior to him coming to California, he actually killed before that. And I'm sure you're going to ask me how I know that, right, Matt? Yes, how do you know that? Well, Mr. Carter has a huge ego, and he cannot stop talking. That's why once he came to death row, he started a bit of a, it's before podcasts, but he'd have this kind of a show, and it was called Dead Man Talking. And on this show, he would talk about being innocent and he would write about the innocent plight of a man, you know, an innocent man in prison and all this stuff because he loved the attention. The host of the show was a guy by the name of Alex Bennett. He had a very early morning show and it was kind of a gag show. You know, he would have a guy run around doing kinds of crazy stuff, jumping off bridges and stuff. So it was one of those morning gag shows. Well, one of his features was a guy by the name of Dead Man Drawing, I mean, Dead Man Talking, and that man was, of course, Dean Carter. And because Dean Carter allowed me to get close to him and really talk to him about these murders, as well as the ones prior to this, Dean Carter allowed me into his little secret that these women in California were not his first victims. He had victims before that. That's how I know. He trusted me so much that he brought me into the circle of this Alex Bennett guy in this show, and they put up a website called Dead Man Drawing, where I was showing my artwork very early. This is the late 80s and early 1990s, and I'm showing, or I was showing some of my work, of course, this was my way of getting close to Dean Carter and learning everything I could about him. He was one of my earliest subjects in, unbeknownst to them, of course, interviewing, researching, studying, and writing a thesis on serial killers. And Dean Carter, as well as Rodney Alcala, and a number of other serial killers were my first subjects. I don't really understand how this guy belongs on a morning zoo type of show. I mean, is he funny? Is he interesting? He, without getting into the evidence right now, he was arrested driving the car of one of the victims, and there's a lot more evidence than that. So it seems pretty clownish to be claiming his innocence. You're exactly right, but I'm going to explain this to you and clear this up for you when I call you back. I'll be back. Hey, yeah, you were saying. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. He was pulled over in the car, which was a a Datsun 280ZX. I think if people are old enough uh, to know what that car is, and you're probably over 50 years of age. I looked it up. It's a sweet car. He was driving. It was a cool car, yeah. It was like, I think the car came out in 1979, 1980. It's a Datsun 280Z and X. And a patrolman from Arizona named Robert Dapser pulled him over because he was weaving in and out and he was under the influence. Um, so he arrests him 
and it pops up that the car is actually the stolen car of one of his victims. And he is booked. He's held on one million dollar bail. And then the case, all the cases come up. All the bodies are found. Everything's happening. They, they basically have a slam dunk case against this guy. On top of that, besides driving the victim's car, he has trinkets from the other victims as well. So he's connected to all of them. Most damning of all, and again, this is prior to DNA evidence being a big thing. So you really couldn't connect them to him, although they already convicted him. His DNA was found inside the victims. In other words, he raped each one of the women that he killed. So the evidence is overwhelming. There's no doubt by those accounts and evidence. But Dean Carter also told me many times how he enjoyed it, how he laughed about it. He laughed in front of me, he thought it was the cutest thing in the world. And on top of that, he'd clown and joke around because he did this show called Dead Man Talking. It's like a column, he'd write different things about different subjects. He always said he did not want to discuss his case. However, he'd always, because I would read the post and learn more and more about him, he always post different things about being innocent. He would say that uh, a man who is innocent uh, or someone who's innocent uh, doesn't understand the plight of a man in this circumstance uh, unless you've actually experienced it. So he's actually saying that innocent people don't understand him unless you're actually innocent and you're in prison. Well, that kind of points to the direction that you're actually innocent. Well, some of the, the uh, one of the fathers of the victims that he killed um, put up a, his own website, and it's called Justice Against Crime Talking, and it includes a link to Carter's site, and there's a photograph of a donkey there. So this um, well, this grieving father sees this guy online claiming his innocence and he knows that he killed his daughter so he kind of did this but Dean Carter is um, I don't know if he's still doing that website or doing that show um, I know that Alex Den is no longer a disc jockey he might be dead by now this is like early 1990s but the the website at least the one that Dean Carter had it was in six different languages by the way um, the column became pretty um pretty famous at one time because of course in this day before the internet and again this is the beginnings of the internet 1993 1994 somewhere around there there really wasn't where you could just google somebody it didn't work that way back then i don't know if you remember that map but back then the internet had some websites you know it was just the beginning of the revolution was which was the internet nowadays you google Philip Carter or Dean Philip Carter and right away you get his entire Wikipedia, murder Belia, whatever the hell those websites are called, but then you get an entire section on what he did, the evidence against him, etc. Back then you couldn't, so he was able to hide in his words that he was innocent 
The truth is, if anybody looks now, this column wouldn't work because the evidence is overwhelming. He's driving the victim's car. His sperm is found in the victim's bodies. The guy did it. The guy's 100% guilty. I know it. He knows it. He confided in with me, confided in me and told me this. So as far as I'm concerned, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, I'm looking at one of his columns now, and there's a lot of them. He was he was pretty prolific, I guess, or certainly he did this for a while. Uh, he's playing a victim. It's a way of playing a victim. Obviously, pretending you're innocent is a way of playing a victim, but he's also soliciting, you know, he wants people to write to him and talk to him and stuff. So I'm guessing that was part of his motivation. Yeah, he's one of the he's one of the serial killers that likes the fame. You know, this is before um, the whole death row groupie thing took off. It really took off when Richard Ramirez was arrested and all that stuff happened. But this guy wasn't as well known. And when Richard Ramirez came on the scene, kind of he stole all the attention. So these guys, like this, like this particular serial killer, was trying to get close to anybody he could. So he'd get on there, and his motivation is real simple, ladies and gentlemen. He gets women to write, because a lot of women out there write guys in prison who are on death row, specifically serial killers. He gets money, he gets uh, gifts, he gets a lot of things, so he would talk. A lot of reporters want to talk to him. If he's talking, he has a website called Dead Man Talking, people want to interview him. That generates an income for him. For him. And he believes if he gets a reporter who's female to come see him and talk to him, he's going to somehow make her fall in love with him. It's just the same thing that these guys do in different formats. And as you mentioned, he was prolific. He used to do it. He had nothing else to do. He couldn't go to a normal yard. They'd kill him out there. <laughs> I've mentioned a number of times that death row at San Quentin Prison, especially specifically in East Block, were the worst killers, and I don't mean serial killers, I mean guys who are in prison, who are convicts, and they prey on other killers. These are the apex predators that are gang members, affiliated guys, mafia guys. These guys roam them yards. This guy, Carter, couldn't go to a normal yard because they would have killed him. He ultimately, I think in 1998, because he couldn't go outside, he transferred up to North Seg at San Quentin, which is a special place for people who are soft. Their doors are always open. There's a lot of weird shit going on in the shower area. And he fit right, he was right at home up there because he's a fucking weirdo. And weirdos fit in Norseg. Right. So if you ever run across a guy on death row, ask him, what part of a death row were you on? If he says, well, I was in Norseg, I'd just say, hey, you're a pussy. <laughs> you couldn't make it in East Block. Um... <laughs> So speaking of his motivation, and uh, you mentioned when he was arrested, he was under the influence of what? I'm not sure. But his whole M.O. reminds me a lot of Richard Ramirez, who was a speed freak with his teeth rotted out. And so when Dean Carter breaks into these women's home homes, um, he he steals paltry amounts of money. And then he... Um, you know, rapes them. So I'm guessing the money's part of his motivation, or I mean, is this partly drug fueled? Um, I, I'm I'm sure there's other ways to get more money than that. It's a little confusing to me. 
Well, it really, actually, it's not. You can have a dual purpose when you go do something. He was a burglar to begin with, so he stole things. That's not uncommon. When he went to prison for it, he began to fantasize about he's in a house and there are women in these houses. And the fantasy soon turns to rape. And once he does that, he realizes that he really gets off on killing too. And that's how the whole, he discovers what he is, which is a serial killer. Was it partially driven by drugs? Sure. Was it partially motivated by money? Absolutely. But the main purpose that he was there, if there was no money, it didn't matter. He actually got what he wanted, which was to rape and kill. So the secondary motivation was money or stealing things to support his habits. And when he got to prison, as you and I spoke before the interview or before this this particular episode, uh, Dean Carter was a heroin addict too. When he was in prison, he got there, he was already strung out on drugs and he was searching to buy drugs from guys on the tiers. And of course, guys burned him because he was a serial killer. He couldn't go outside to, to, to you know, basically tell a guy, hey, give me my stuff or I'm gonna kill you. He never would have done that. So they would sell him what looked like tar heroin, but it was actually coffee or something. So yeah, he didn't have a, an easy time on death row in prison. So he found a bit of a freedom or a bit of freedom uh, on the internet with the website Dead Man Talking. Wouldn't shooting coffee into your veins be more likely to kill you even than shooting heroin into your veins? Well, yeah, but he wasn't shooting it. He was snorting it. So if you snort some coffee, it's probably going to give you a fucking massive headache, but it's not, <laughs> not going to kill you. So one of the women testified that during the attack, after she survived, testified that he was he was not fully aroused during this experience. Um, like he was having some trouble. And again, something that's hard for me to wrap my mind around. He's he's really literally risking his life for this experience for lack of a better word um but i don't know his his body's not cooperating with him i guess that could be a drug thing well it could be drugs it also remember that serial killers or rapists don't need to penetrate to get off you know we've talked a number of times we found witnesses that have actually um DNA on them or near the area because they, they masturbate. They actually didn't um, penetrate. We've also had cases where I've explained that serial rapists, you can't stop them from doing what they do. If you castrate them, they still will sexually assault a woman. It's a brain thing. It's not, it has nothing to do, in some cases, with penetration. It has to do with um, the act or the act of control. He can sexualize control. He can sexualize the attack, the brutality of the attack. So it doesn't surprise me, but we know that in the other women, there was um, DNA inside them, so he, he was able to penetrate. And according to uh, Miss Stewart, he did penetrate. Maybe he wasn't performing to the level that she thought he would, or 
you know, maybe she was also, you know, kind of slighting him. The guy thought he was Mr. Don Juan. What's the best way to kick someone in the nuts who thinks he's Don Juan DeMarco was to tell him, shit, the guy couldn't get a heart on. Yeah. That is a big ego. So, hey, she's, we know she's very smart intellectually as well as psychologically. She was able to fool him. So maybe she, that was her way of getting back to him and or getting back at him and saying like, yeah, Mr. Mr. Six foot four, two hundred and thirty pounds. He can't even get it up. Yeah, that that did occur to me too. So, okay, so you talk to this guy pretty regularly. Um, I got a couple questions. What was he like? That's a that's a general, it's a very generic question. And um, well, he was he, okay. Well, let me answer that first question. He was soft spoken. But remember, he, he had to be because you can't rape to guys on death row who are killers because they take it as a slight and they want to put a, put a knife in your neck. I mean, he was kind of the sneaky guy. He would talk in whispered tones. He'd laugh. He'd giggle. I mean, I knew him quite well. As I said, he, he liked me so much and trusted me so much that he got me to meet Alex Bennett and put me on that show with him. Well, not, it was on the website. I had my own website called Dead Man Drawing, and he had his, which is Dead Man Talking. Um, ultimately, I got off the website because my motivation was to find out about him. I didn't really care about the website. Let me call you back. Well, tell me, you have a prepaid call from... William A. Navira. An incarcerated individual asked... Yeah, well, a, a lot of very large people like that, you know, 6'4", 250 pounds or whatever, they're often pretty soft-spoken because sometimes, you know, they can unintentionally scare people. Are you talking from experience, Matt? Because you're six four, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm I'm pretty uh I, I don't I'm not normal? Yeah, I'm not big, but no, I have been told like, you know, when you stand over people it it, it like frightens them sometimes. So why don't you sit down? Stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's not a good. Uh, that's not a good example. You want to be comparing yourself to Dean Carter, uh, Matt. <laughs> but look, look the, the guy was. He was look. He was a creepy guy. Okay, he wasn't. If you meet the guy among guys, he's just some lame. But if you start looking at him for what he is, because you know he's a rapist and a serial killer, you start seeing these different cues. He's kind of creepy. You know, he gets close. He talks totally too close to you. He invades people's space. Um, he smiles and he, and he chuckles and he giggles like a little kid. Those are all creepy-ass signs. I mean, to me, I don't give a damn. You know, if you ever got too close, I'd just slap the shit out of him. But this guy was creepy. And then he, he played the whole, I'm an, uh, an American Eskimo and, you know, the plight of the Indian. He, he grew his hair long. Um, I would see him in a busy room with it, but a number of different women that would come interview him and talk to him, he was like a king in paradise. He, you know, he gained a lot of weight. Uh, he'd go out there and eat like crazy. I mean, he was enjoying the whole experience of being on death row, and I've mentioned this a number of times, 
these serial killers on death row became celebrities. Right. So this is his glory days, basically. Um, now you mentioned we mentioned at the beginning of the show. You said you know that he has more victims before this spree. Do you want to elaborate yes. on that? Well, during our discussions and our talks, you know, I, I, I kind of asked him first, kind of like hinted around, and he jumped to tell me that these women were not his first. And I said, well, man, what are you talking? He goes, why? Because I live, he, he was a cameraman actually for a, for a TV television station in Anchorage, Alaska. And as a cameraman, he bragged that he had met women that he killed. He said that he also, in Oregon, had more victims. So this guy is not near the game. I, I won't go into details right now because, uh, well, you know very well that I am uh, working with uh, law enforcement to try and uh, solve a number of these cases and they're very difficult to solve if people start finding out where they could be and they start searching for bodies you have a whole bunch of people out there going nuts with a treasure map looking for bodies but he changed his mo a little bit instead of throwing him in closets or killing them he at one point put him somewhere where you couldn't find him and he gave me different directions he gave me hints we don't know exactly if all of them are true or not, but in some of these cases that I have been unofficially been working with uh, different families as well as law enforcement, we have found that the killer was telling the truth, and we are bringing that to light now uh, regarding the victims and that these guys actually killed more women than they, that they had let on. Most of these guys have a lot more victims. You don't suddenly wake up in your late 20s and decide just to start killing and raping right so you're yeah you'll be pursuing this along with with uh, other cases so you said he becomes kind of obese he's already pretty large and he's a drug addict so he still made it to 68 which is not bad um, I'm, I'm assuming he had a heart attack or something. Well, in prison, they keep you alive, uh, Matt. They, you know, it, if you die in prison, there's no money to be made. In prison, there's medical, especially San Quentin on death row. Um, and the doctors really take care of you. They give you every kind of medication. This guy's out oh, he's, on death row. Oh, he's still... Oh, yeah, sorry to interrupt. He's still alive. I'm sorry. I, I read that wrong. I thought he was dead. No, no, he's alive, and he, they keep him high blood pressure medication, they give him blood thinners, they give him, they give these guys to keep them alive a plethora, you like that word, don't you, Matt? Plethora of <laughs> medications to keep them alive, and because dead guys don't pay, and Dean Carter is one of those guys that's benefiting from a great medical um, provider that you get in prison, especially on death row when death row was basically abolished after some time of processing, you were moved to Corcoran and he was moved to, uh, do you know where he was taken or, or did you, did you know what was going on with everyone? Well, my under yeah, we'll see. 
We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I wasn't taken off death row because they moved us and they abolished it. I was taken off death row because my sentence was overturned and my conviction thrown out. Dean Carter still has the death penalty. The death penalty has not been abolished in California. There's a moratorium that no one's being killed because Governor Newsom doesn't want anybody killed. But the death penalty still exists. And if, if Governor Newsom comes out of office, the next governor could very easily activate the death penalty. And there's like 20-some guys already in line to be killed within a month. Just boom, 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 boom. Because they're all have exhausted their legal appeals. Uh, Dean Carter is still going through his appeals, but um, he's going to be moving. Everybody from San Quentin's death row over the next three to four months will be moved off of death row there and sent to a regular prison where they will retain the death penalty over their head, but they will just be on a regular protective custody yard or a regular level four where they'll be mixed with a regular population. I see. I see. So, yeah, he would be a great candidate to be executed. But uh, at the same time, I, I guess I hope that doesn't happen. It's kind of a paradox. Why? I don't get that. You're a paradox of what? You're a little conflicted that you should kill serial killers? No, I think they should. I, I would laugh if he was killed, but, you know, having the death penalty means people like yourself are caught up in the system and it, it's misused and all that. Well, yeah, no, no, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, speaking from experience, which I have, I spent 40, de- 40, 40 days. Yeah, it was been great. I spent 40 days on death row. I spent 40 years on death row. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I hadn't been able to study these guys up close, there's some good coming from it. Um, I committed a crime at the age of 18, one single crime, um, and I paid with it with my life. I kind of live a living amends where I try and help the public and educate the public the best I can, and I'm okay with that. Um, people would say, hey, hey, you're alive. And the truth is I am alive. And uh, what I'm doing makes me feel like I'm contributing to society in some way. Uh, One of the biggest things about rehabilitation is taking responsibility for the things you do and I have. In Dean Carter's case, he hasn't taken responsibility. He plays the victim as we've talked about. And um, I don't have a lot of sympathy for him, you know. I'm glad that these guys are alive so I was able to research, talk, interview, and get them to talk but I would much prefer that they never existed and the victims would still be alive enjoying their lives as mothers grandmothers or whatever yeah well said in closing uh, I'm sure someone's told you this but you know they changed uh, I'll leave it in I'm sure the audience has heard it before but the uh, 
the phone processing system that says, you know, you have a call from from Mr. Nagara. They changed it from inmate to incarcerated individual. Um, yeah, isn't that a crock of shit? I mean, seriously. <laughs> yeah, they, they, in here they're calling us residents now. That we're residents <laughs> living in a program facility. I'm like, get the fuck out of here, man. Let, let's be let's be honest about this. I mean, I try and be pretty gregarious <laughs> about everything. Man, I'm a freaking prisoner. I can't. If I'm a resident, I could actually just walk out of this thing and get me a freaking uh, uh, basket robins, you know, 31 flavors or whatever the hell it is, ice cream. I just love one. But I can't. This is just political correct people trying to make guys. It's just a crack of shit. I'm a prisoner. I am a convict. I am a whatever, an inmate, whatever you want to call me. That's exactly what I am. Because I live in a cell. I can't come out of my cell if they lock the door. I can't jump over the wall if I want to. I can't go skating if I want to. I'm an inmate, so this whole political correctness crap has just gone too far. And you guys already know how I feel about this. Don't get me going on this crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just that's a new one. This this new one on the phone thing. So I just thought that was amusing. Um, anyway, we'll be back next time. Oh, don't forget to subscribe to your newsletter, right, Bill? Yeah. Sign up my newsletter. You can see on my website, WilliamNagara.com. I did mention that I got my name back. I used to be it used to be WilliamNagara.com when I first started, and I had some issues with someone <laughs> stole my name, and I had to go with artist WilliamNagara. Now my website's back to WilliamNagara.com. There is a link there, so you can go to sign up for my newsletter. You get some exclusive content about murders on death row, serial killers, all kinds of good stuff, and. As an insider, you're going to get all kinds of stuff you don't get anywhere else. So please check me out there. Check out my my YouTube page, William A. Noguera, and my TikTok page will be out probably next month in um, in uh, March. Get some really cool stuff there, too. And check us out on Patreon at Death Row Diaries. Until next time, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Noguera. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.